Good morning to everyone. It's good to see everybody today. Uh, we want to take our Bibles and we're going to look at Psalm 117 today. We're working our way through a series that we're calling Summer in the Psalms. And so we're going to, over the next uh, five or six weeks or so, continue on with that series. And uh, today we're going to look at Psalm 117 and we're going to consider what God is like. I can't think of anything more or uh, more meaningful than for us to be able to sit back, to, to really just pull back and consider and contemplate what God is like. And so that is at the heart of what we want to accomplish today. Some of you may have heard of Muggsy Bogues. Uh, that name may sound like the name of a gangster in a mob movie, but Muggsy Bogues is known as the shortest player to ever play in the NBA. In a basketball league full of giants, some that stand as tall as seven foot six inches, Muggsy Bogues stood five foot three inches. Throughout his 14-year playing career in the NBA, he was referred to as the diminutive Muggsy Bogues. In his autobiography, In the Land of Giants, he talked about what it was like to be known as the shortest player to ever play in the NBA. And Muggsy Bogues is a perfect reminder that bigger is not always better, and that sometimes the shorter something is, the more impactful it can be. And I think that is indeed the case when we consider Psalm 117. It's the shortest chapter in the Bible, just two verses, only 17 words in the Hebrew. But there's another very interesting aspect of this psalm. Psalm 117 is also the middle chapter of the Bible. It is the 595th chapter with 594 chapters before it and 594 chapters after it. And so in keeping with the idea that bigger is not always better, we want to examine this diminutive chapter today because it serves as a reminder as to what God is like. Way back in 1986, when my friends and family learned that Kathy and I had entered into a dating relationship, they began to quiz me as to what she was like. They hadn't yet met her, and so they asked me, what makes her so special? Well, it was easy for me to answer that, and so I began to, to, to list for my friends and my family some of her greatest attributes. I told them that she was very kind, she was compassionate. She had a meek and gentle spirit that the scriptures say that godly women possess. I told them that she's loyal and faithful and she has a servant's heart. And, and I could have went on and on and on, but they got the picture. You see, by me giving them some of her attributes, they felt like it helped them to know what she was like until they would finally meet her in person. Well, the reality is one day we're going to meet God. Personally, we are going to meet the God of the universe. Those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord will be with him forever in glory. But in the meantime, God has given us his word so that we may know all about him. And as we'll see in a moment, Psalm 117 provides us a succinct description of what God is like. And that's really been one of the great questions of all time, right? What is God like? What is God like? We looked at Romans chapter 1 last week and we realized that everyone knows there is a God. 
God has implanted in the heart of everyone he's created to know that he exists, and he's given us his creation, his creation, where there's a specific design that was designed by a grand designer, and that designer is God himself. Everyone knows that God exists. There is no such thing as a a true atheist. But the question comes down to, what is God like? Yes, we know generally, general revelation, that God has created all of this, but we want to talk today a little bit about special revelation. How can we really know what God is like? Well, one of the early church fathers, Theophilus of Antioch, said this in the late second century AD. He said, for in glory he is incomprehensible, in greatness unfathomable, in height inconceivable, in power incomparable, in wisdom unrivaled, in goodness inimitable, and in kindness unutterable. (laughs) Essentially, he said that God is unknowable unless he chooses to reveal himself. I think that's something that we can kind of wrap our minds around this morning. God, because of his grandness and because of who he is, he is unknowable unless he chooses to reveal himself to us. And we're so grateful that he has. Irenaeus, another early church father, said around 175 AD, he said, without God, God cannot be known. And this is why the Bible is so absolutely vital, because in the Bible, as the author of the Bible, God has told us what he is like. And he's done so by listing his many attributes. Now, an attribute is a characteristic that helps to describe the nature of something or someone. It's kind of what I did when my friends and my family asked me about the girl that I was dating. Tell us a little bit about what she is like. And that's what an attribute is. It's a, it helps to describe who something is or what something is. And in the case of God, his attributes tell us who he is and what he is like in terms that we can understand. And so there are really two categories of God's attributes in the Bible. There are his non-communicable attributes and his communicable attributes. God's non-communicable attributes are unique to him and him alone, but his communicable attributes are those that he shares, at least in part, with us as human beings. And so as we begin today, let me just give you a listing of some of his non-communicable attributes. These, These are attributes of God that none of us will ever experience. And the list begins with the three omnis, omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence. God is omnipotent, which means that he is all-powerful. There is nothing or no one who is powerful as God. He is the supreme example of power. He is omniscient, which means he is all-knowing. He knows everything before it will ever even happen. God is omnipresent, which means that he is all-present. He's everywhere present at once. But in addition to the three omnis, he is immutable which means that he is unchanging in his character and being. God cannot change. God is sovereign, which means he's in complete control of all things. He is eternal, which means that he has no beginning and no end. He is immortal, which means he cannot die. He is great, which means he is unparalleled in his awesomeness. 
He is self-existent, which means that he doesn't need anything from anyone for his existence. And so those are some of his non-communicable attributes. But when we think of his communicable attributes, we see that though these attributes find their complete expression in God, we as humans can also experience them in a limited form. Some of his communicable attributes include wisdom and faithfulness and truthfulness, love and goodness, righteousness, mercy, compassion, holiness, graciousness, patience, peace, kindness, gentleness, joy, forgiveness, and justice. And so you get the idea. This is who God is. This is what God is like. And and if the description of God that he's given us in the Bible about himself isn't enough, he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to show mankind exactly what he is like right? John 1.18 says, no one has seen God at any time. God, the only Son who is in the arms of the Father, He has explained Him. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also made the world. So today we want to consider, as we look at Psalm 117, we want to consider what God is like. So I want to ask you just to kind of put all of the things of this life and this world to the side. Can we just as a church family today concentrate our attention on what God is like? Can we not be distracted by all of the things that we have to do in the coming week, by all of the things that maybe uh, brought us to a certain point during this past week. We all have a mind, and our mind is filled with all kinds of things, and so can we just set those things aside today? Can we just set those things aside and concentrate on God and be reminded what He is like? Psalm 117 says this, Praise the Lord, all nations. Laud Him, all peoples. For His loving kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Praise the Lord. You see how he bookends it, right? He bookends it by praise the Lord and praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, all nations. Laud him, all peoples. For his loving kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Praise the Lord. Psalm 117 is one of the six Egyptian Hallel psalms that were sung at the, as a part of the Passover service. Hallel is Hebrew for praise. So Psalm 113 through 118 are referred to as the Hallel songs, psalms, the songs of praise. And so Jesus would have sang this song with his disciples. And in this song, we find two highlighted reasons as to why God is worthy of our praise. And as we said last week, God chose Israel as his people, and because of that, they were called to praise him, right? But here we find another reminder from the psalmist that all people, all nations are to praise him. What is wrong with the world today? They've lost this charge to praise the Lord, to honor God as to who he is 
and what he has done. It's almost like God has been pushed to the corner. There's a movement afoot in our own country to remove anything related to God from the public square. Any of our founding documents, remove the name of God. From our currency, remove the name of God. From our Pledge of Allegiance and all of these different things, remove the name of God. So you want to know what's wrong with the world today? We've lost the recognition of who God is, what he is like. So we see here these two highlighted reasons as to why God is worthy of praise. And the first reason for praise is God's loving kindness. Praise the Lord, all nations, laud him, all peoples, for his loving kindness is great toward us. This is the Hebrew word kesed, which is translated here as loving kindness. Kesed is used 248 times in the Old Testament and 127 times in the Psalms. And it specifically means the goodness and kindness of God that is born out of his love. The goodness and kindness of God that is born out of his love. And it relates to God's character. His, his loving kindness reflects his heart towards those who are his own. Loving kindness, kesed, is God's kindness and his steadfast love for his children. It is his loving favor, his mercy upon mankind. Now, we all know because we are recipients of the grace and the mercy of God, right? We are recipients of the love of God. The love of God has been manifested in us because of what God has done for us through Christ. And by placing our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone, we have this love relationship with God. And so love is at the heart of who God is. God is a God of love, and his kindness is born out of his love for us. So why do we need his grace? Why do we need his mercy? Well, obviously, we know we need his grace and his mercy because we have sinned against holy God. Every person has sinned against holy God. Why do you think God has been pushed back into the corner? He's been pushed back into the corner because sinners have not acknowledged their sin before a holy God. But as the redeemed, as those whom God has blessed and graced and, and, and shared his mercy with us, we realize that it's unmerited. There's nothing we can do to earn it. We can do all kinds of charitable deeds. God's not impressed with that. We can do all kinds of, of nice things for people. God is not impressed with that. The first reason that we are to praise God is because of his loving kindness. And we see all the way throughout the Old Testament, we find that God showed his loving kindness by delivering his children from their enemies. His loving kindness is manifested through the comfort that he provides to his children. It's demonstrated in redeeming us from our sin, and his loving kindness is also displayed as he assures his people of his promises. But let's not misdefine what love is, because there are all kinds of new definitions for love, right, in our world today. We certainly uh, can 
uh, read a newspaper article or some opinion or editorial or something where people are redefining what love is. Loving kindness is born out of this 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 love this who god is he's a, he, god is love and so the fruit of his love is kindness and mercy and grace but love is not tolerance love is not tolerance for sin love doesn't mean nice love does and says the hard things too because because love desires the best for one another. And so when we see that God loves us, he has provided his only begotten son to come and to die in the place for sinners. We would have no hope apart from the love of God that's manifested in his kindness and his grace and his mercy. It's real to us. God has given his son from the glories of heaven. He sent him down to a sin-filled earth to live among sinners. Thirty-some years he lived on the earth. Can you even imagine the sinless son of God coming to live among sinners? His father was a sinner. His mother was a sinner. All of his relatives were sinners. He was a carpenter. Everyone he worked for was a sinner. Everywhere he went, in the marketplace, he was around sinners. And yet he is the sinless son of God. The demonstration of God's love for us. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When I was in Israel, we went to the two supposed places where Jesus died. One of them uh, was referred to as the hill Golgotha. It was, Golgotha means skull, and so when you looked at the rock formation, it looked like a big skull. It had the indentions for the eyes and the nose and so on, and, and so it resembled a skull, and they've called it for centuries the hill Golgotha. And when I went there, I was almost in a trance. I just looked, and I imagined Jesus dying on the cross with me in mind. He went to the cross for particular people, particular sins of particular people. He came and he died as my substitute. And if you've trusted in Christ, he died as your substitute on the cross. And I just stared at the area and I imagined this is the manifestation of love. What does love look like? Well, love takes on many different forms, right? The same God who loved us enough to send Christ to come and die on the cross for our sins is also the same God who disciplines us. Those whom God loves, he disciplines. Why? Because he loves us. Why do we discipline our children when they go awry and they do things that are wrong? To teach them that's wrong. You can't do that. God has given us the responsibility as parents to teach our kids what is right and wrong. Kids are to obey their parents. Why? Because they're too little to know what's right and wrong. And so we're given the responsibility. So when we take them in the back room and we give them a swat on the rear end, it's not because we like to do that. 
It's because we love them enough to do that. And oftentimes, after I would do that with our kids, I tried to make it a course of action that when I would discipline them, I would always give them a hug and I would tell them that I loved them. And I, if I didn't love you, I wouldn't discipline you. You see, love takes on many different forms. I want to show you some of the Old Testament uses of Kesed here, which I think will give us some descriptions of his, of his loving kindness. So first we find here in verse 2 that his loving kindness is great. The Hebrew word for great here carries the idea of being mighty. So meaning that God's loving kindness is great in, in, in extent. It's all-encompassing. It's powerful. But the key here is that his loving kindness is great toward us. So we're the recipients of his great loving kindness, and we're greatly impacted by his loving kindness. His loving kindness is great. It's mighty. It's powerful. Second, we find in Numbers chapter 14 and verse 18 that God's loving kindness is abundant. I, I love this. Numbers 14, 18, the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in kesed, loving kindness, mercy, forgiving wrongdoing and violation of his law, but he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, inflicting the punishment of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. When we think of his loving kindness being abundant, it, it means that it is more than we need. It's more than we need. When Kathy and I were on our anniversary trip to Ocean City, Maryland, for our anniversary dinner, we wanted to do something special. And so we went to this big prime rib and seafood buffet, and it was fantastic. You could have as many pieces of prime rib as you wanted. You could have all of the seafood that you wanted. There was an overwhelming amount of food, far more than we could ever eat. You see, that's what abundance is, right? The abundance, God's loving kindness is abundant. We'll never exhaust it. It is abundant. Third, God's loving kindness is, is everlasting. It never burns out. It never fizzles out. The other night, one of our neighbors decided that they were going to shoot off an hour's worth of fireworks uh, at 10.15 in the evening. I've been in bed for an hour. And all of a sudden, I'm woken up by this barrage of fireworks. Kathy hadn't yet come to bed. She said she went out on the back deck and watched them. She said it was like going to Hershey Park, like an hour's worth, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of these fireworks. But it finally came to an end, and I was thankful for that. It actually did fizzle out. It actually did burn out. But God's loving kindness is not that way. It's everlasting. It never fizzles out. It never burns out. Psalm 100 and verse 5 says, In part, for the Lord is good, his kesed, his loving kindness, his mercy is everlasting. And then fourth, God's loving kindness is better than life. It's better than the fleeting pleasures of this life. Psalm 63 and verse 6 says, Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. You see, life without the loving kindness of God is just waiting for death. It's just waiting for physical extinction. This is what the Jehovah Witnesses believe. 
that they believe in annihilationism. So at some point, if you're not one of the 144,000 and you've not earned your way to heaven, then you just won't exist anymore. You just won't exist. You'll go to the grave and you'll be there. Your soul does not live on. You'll just be in the grave forever, annihilationism. And that's kind of here what, um, what we find uh, just the opposite as it relates to the loving kindness of God. It's better than life. It's better than the fleeting pleasures of this life. So that's the first highlighted reason here that the psalmist gives us as to why God is worthy of our praise. It's because of his loving kindness. But the second reason here that the psalmist gives us as to why God is worthy of our praise is his truth. His truth. Truth here is the Hebrew word emeth, and it means faithfulness and firmness in truth. So God is the embodiment of truth. All that emanates from him is true. He deserves our highest praise because he has given us truth. And let me just say, this truth is different than one plus one equals two. That's a mathematical equation that we would say is a fact. When you have one thing plus another thing, that equals two things. There's no power in a mathematical equation. There's no power in one plus one equals two. There is power in his truth because he is true and he is the author of truth. I love 1 John chapter 5 and verse 20 that says, The Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we know him who is true and we are in him who is true. Even in his Son, Jesus Christ, he is true God and eternal life. So let me give you seven descriptions of the truth of the Lord that should evoke our praise. And first we find here in verse, two, in verse 2 that just like God's loving kindness is everlasting, God's truth is everlasting. And by the way, the attributes that we looked at earlier, those are all everlasting too because God cannot change. He's immutable. So his attributes transcend time. They never go away. That's who he is. It's what he's like. We can be known as a very hardworking person, very industrious, but if we quit work and we just become a bum then we're no longer a hardworking and industrious person, right? But God does not change. He cannot, he cannot change. So God's truth is everlasting. Truth is truth. <laughs> that sounds simple, doesn't it? By its very nature, truth cannot change. It is static. It is eternal. It is everlasting. It's at the heart of how we know how we can live our lives for God. 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25 says, The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which we have preached to you. God's truth is everlasting. It never wears out. So I want you to think a little bit about the, the, the power, the inherent power of truth. So we know in Romans 1, 16 and 17 that the power of God unto salvation is the gospel message that's recorded for us in the scriptures, right? But we also know that the Bible is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. You see, one plus one equals two has no power. But the truth of God's word has inherent power because God is the author of his truth. He himself is the embodiment of truth. 
Don't you want to know sometimes in certain situations just what the truth is? What's the truth? (laughs) What's the truth? Well, we know from Romans chapter 1 that those who are described there have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. In other words, they pushed God in the corner. They don't want to know anything about God. They would rather worship the creature than the creator. So they're all about lies, gathering lies about who God is and what he is like. Or they may say, we don't even believe in God, or we're not sure, right? That's the agnostic position. We're not sure if there's a God. Well, yes, you are. Yes, you are. I'll trust God's word that is true that says that you know there's a God. I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. Yes, you do. You're just suppressing the truth that you know about God. And so what happened in society when all of that started to transpire and we're living in a Romans 1 society today God turns them over three times in the text in Romans 1 he turns them over he turns them over he gives them what they think they want and we talked a couple of weeks back about our responsibility as ambassadors for Christ right 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20, that we are to be ambassadors for Christ. We're to literally beg people on behalf of God to be reconciled to God, to beg them, to plead with them, to appeal to them. And I feel like some Christians have kind of just given up. In a lot of ways, they've just kind of given up. They, they see the magnitude of what we're up against And they see where the world is going, and it's going downhill fast. Yes, we'll worship God, and we'll come to church, and we'll teach our kids, but where is the zeal for others who need Christ? Not just people that we know, but people that we don't know. Where is our heart as it relates to this call that we're to be ambassadors for Christ? An ambassador is someone who represents someone else. So we have ambassadors all throughout all the embassies in the world. The United States of America has, a, has an ambassador that serves the interests of the country in another country. So they're the representative of our country in that country, right? It's the same idea for us. We are the representative of Christ wherever we go. We are ambassadors for God, and we're to, we're to literally beg people to be reconciled to God. God's truth is everlasting. You know, it's pretty sad, but I did a Google search about truth this past week. You know what I found? Page after page after page after page after page until the Bible was even mentioned. You see, God's been pushed off into a corner His word has been pushed off into a corner. The truth of the Lord is everlasting. Turn with me to Psalm Psalm 19. So just back about, well, about 98 chapters. Turn back to Psalm 19. And we find here in Psalm 19 more descriptions of the truth of God's word. And I want to read this to you first, and then we'll look at it. But it's, it's Psalm 19, verses 7 through 9. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, 
restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, and they're righteous altogether. So the second description that's worth noting here is found here in verse 7, and it's that God's truth is, is perfect. Some of you know that I am cheap, and uh, I inherited this from my mother, but I am fairly cheap. Kathy and I went out to Roots Farmer's Market the other evening, and uh, we needed to get some produce, and so we searched around, and uh, we got to the first stand, and Kathy goes, well, let's buy these. I said, honey, we need to look around. We need to walk around and see who's got the best prices. And so uh, we walked around, and we finally got to this one stand, and they had a box of tomatoes, imperfect, but they had a box of tomatoes for a dollar. And I said, that's, that's what we're looking for right there. <laughs> and so we got a whole box of like 10 or 11 tomatoes for, for a dollar. They were imperfect, but I just went home and cut out the imperfections and um, but we don't need to do that with God's word. You see here, God's word is perfect. No imperfections. You don't need to cut out the bruises. You don't need to cut out the the the, the splinters or the slices in it. It's it's actually what he means here is that it's perfectly sufficient. It's perfectly sufficient. Like we don't need anything more than this. We don't need anything more to know how to live our lives for God because God, who is truth, has given us his truth, and so we don't need anything more. 2 Peter 1.3 says that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Well, how do we know how to live for God? He tells us in his word. Very, very specifically tells us in his word. Very specifically. Everything we need to know as to how to live our lives for God is found in his word. You see, I get, I get why unbelievers would look for wisdom and truth from other sources, like, like philosophy or psychology or culture or other friends or family members. But believers, we know what God's Word says. It's perfectly sufficient for us to know how to live our lives for God. You see, our source book is the perfect Word of God. The Bible is the perfect, unparalleled source of truth. Why is the Bible perfect? because it originates from God. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. He literally breathed it out to us. So we have it. We don't need to wonder about what's true. Now, I've lived my life almost 60 years. I've studied the Bible for a long time. And I am... Literally, I feel like I'm just touching the surface of the truth of God's Word. I'm never, I've read the Bible through many, many times. But I still feel like there's so much more for me to learn, so much more for me to grasp. I've read Psalm 117 a hundred times probably. But you look at it and you pick it apart and you see the truth of it and you go, wow. I need that. 
I need to be reminded of that. That his loving kindness is everlasting. The truth of the Lord is great. And it's everlasting. We find a third description also found here in verse 7, and it's that God's truth is, is trustworthy. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It's, it's trustworthy, making wise the simple. So David, who wrote this psalm, Psalm 19, says that the testimony of the Lord is sure. He's emphasizing the reliability and the accuracy of the Scriptures. You want to know how to live life? He tells us in His Word. The fourth description found here in verse 8, and it's that God's truth is right. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. I tell you, it rejoices my heart to know that we have the truth of God's Word. Can you imagine wandering around in this life without any solid thing to hold on to or any anchor with no truth, no truth that has power? So grateful that God has given us His Word. God's truth is, is right. It's trustworthy. We all know, we all love to know that something is right. Kathy and I are going to be going down to Florida to meet up with my brothers and their families and their families' families. Uh, there's going to be 25 of us staying in the same house, <laughs> which we've never done anything like that before, so you can pray for us about that. But it, we're, we're looking forward to seeing everybody. We just haven't seen them in quite some time, and We'll just pick up right where we left off. But I have no doubt that I will put in the address to that place that we're going to be staying, and the GPS is going to give us the right directions to get there. You see, that's what God's Word does. God's Word is right. It contains the right course. It gives us the right directions. The fifth description found here in verse 8 as well, and it's that God's truth is, is pure. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And perhaps a better translation here might be clear. The Scriptures are clear. They're understandable. God has given us His Word so that we can understand it. It's not written in code. Wasn't there some movies that came out that was all about the coding of the Bible and you can't really understand it unless you learn the code? No. No. No, it's, it's, it's pure. It's clear. The theological term is perspicuous. You know, the Catholics don't believe the Bible is clear. They believe that only the priest is able to rightly interpret the Bible. But the psalmist says that the Scriptures are pure. They're not confusing to the believer. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't any difficult passages in the Bible. Certainly there are. Some passages require deeper study than others, but God's message to us is clear. Study to show yourselves approved unto God, a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And if you've heard me teach on hermeneutics and how to study the Bible, you know that I'm going to say right now that if we can interpret the Bible rightly, then we can also interpret the Bible wrongly. And so the interpretation of Scripture is vital for our understanding. If this is truth, we must understand it. And so we must rightly divide the word of truth. 
The sixth description is found here in verse 9, and it's that God's truth is clean. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. So he uses this word fear here as a synonym for God's word. He's saying that the Bible is unblemished. It's undefiled. It's absent of impurity or infection, uh, imperfection. It's without error in the original writings. It's clean. And then finally, also in verse 9, God's truth is true. God's truth is true. Verse 9, the judgments of the Lord are true, and they're righteous altogether. In a world of confusion, discontent, error, we have the truth of God's Word. We don't need to wonder if two men should marry one another. Because the Bible says that marriage is between one man and one woman. We don't need to wonder if a man should dress up as a woman. Because Scripture tells us that a man is not to dress up as a woman. I mean, we can go on and on and on. We look at culture, and because God's been pushed into the corner and taken out of the equation, anything's up for grabs. No, it isn't. Not for us. And not for our God. Because he's told us exactly what is true. He says that the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether, which means they're right. They're true and they're right. Look, we, if we don't stand on anything, shame on us. We must stand on the truth of God's word. And I don't care what other people think. I really don't. I really don't care what our government thinks. If they're going to try to tell people and me that this is not true and we're not to follow God, I don't care. I don't care what you say. But I care a lot about what God thinks and what God says. And we will stand on the truth of God's word no matter what, period. I had a friend, annoying as all get out, and he would say, period, case closed, end of discussion. After almost every sentence. Period. Case closed. End of discussion. <laughs> That's kind of how I feel. Period. Case closed. End of discussion. If this is true, and God is true, and he's given us his truth, then we're going to stand on it. So whatever it says, that's what we're going to do. Well, what if, no, I don't care about that. I don't care about that. That's not true. This is true. So we're going to stand on the truth of God's word, no matter what. Where have the years gone by? Man, I tell you, and, and I need to get counsel from some of you older people as to how to do this better, because I, I'm starting to get this thing in my mind, I'm getting old. I mean, some of you, ah, you're just a kid, ah, you know, and, well, okay, maybe, but I'm starting to think about stuff. I'm starting to think about 
the 60, almost 60 years that I've lived on this earth. What have I accomplished for the Lord? You ever, you ever sit back and think about this? I mean, I have, I have probably spent tens of thousands of hours, I haven't calculated it, in stupid stuff. Stuff that doesn't matter. I mean, I, I've literally thought about that. Like, what am I going to do now? Because if the life expectancy for a male in the United States of America is 78 years old, and I'm almost 60, I'm not yet, but I've got 19 to go, according to the statistics. God could let me live to be 150. It's appointed and the man wants to die, and then the judgment. We have an appointment with death. We're going to live as long as God wants us to live. I'm good with that. I really have started to think more about what Paul said in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So I'm going to live for Christ. You're going to live for Christ as long as we live. But if we were to die, I'm not afraid of death. Christians aren't afraid of death. We'll stand before Christ. We'll give an account for our life. That's why I'm so serious about I want to do what's in here because I'm going to give an account for it. And so are you. So if this is true and he's given us everything we need for life and godliness, then why aren't we following it expressly, perfectly? If this is true and he's the Lord of the truth, then we need to stand on it. Because God's word is true, it says here, that it produces righteousness in those who accept it and obey it. You see, God's truth changes lives. We know that, right? Or else we would be the ones that were helping to push God into the corner. We know God's word is true because it transformed us. The power that's in God's word, the convicting power of God's word, the gospel message, changed our heart it changed us and now we can do no less than to live for the one who changed us and to follow his truth you see it produces a righteousness in those who accept it and obey it it changes lives god's loving kindness his steadfast loving actions on our behalf know no bounds Psalm 57 and verse 10, your loving kindness is great to the heavens and your truth to the clouds. You see both there. Your loving kindness is great to the heavens and your truth to the clouds. So what's our response to all of this? What's our response to the loving kindness and truth of the Lord? I love what John the elder said to Gaius in 3 John, verses 3 and 4, he said, For I was overjoyed when brothers came and testified to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, than to hear of my children walking in the truth. This is the final arbiter. This is what settles the score, the truth of God's word. May we be people of the truth.
so grateful for his loving kindness that's been manifested in all of our lives. And one of the ways that we can thank him for all that he has done for us is by honoring him, by honoring his truth. The truth of the Lord is everlasting. It's great. It's applicable. And we have it. Be students of it. Love him enough to learn more about God. What's God like? Well, almost inexhaustible what God is like, but we got a snapshot today. We got a snapshot. And we thank him for who he is. Let's pray. Our Father, today we are so grateful for the truth of your word. We're thankful that you are truth and what emanates from you is true. And we are to stand on your truth. And so we thank you for that. We thank you that we can do that. And we don't care what the rest of the world says about this, that, or the, the other thing. What we care about is what you say. And that's our guidebook. And so may we be students of your truth. And Lord, if there's someone here today that doesn't know Christ as their Savior from sin, that they would be convicted today as most of us were at one point in time where your truth, the powerfulness of your truth convicted us of our sin and we turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. And so we pray that for anyone today that's here that doesn't know Christ as their Savior. We look forward to a spectacular afternoon of baptisms and people identifying with Christ. May it be a great time for us as a church family to refocus our attention on what's important, what's vital, what's true. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand, please.